Hello everybody and welcome back to Lighting the Pipes. Thank you very much for joining us here today on this early summer reading adventure. My name is Scott Powell and as always I'm joined by my partner in books, my brother in arms, my reading buddy Joshua Taylor across the pond in Canada. Huzzah! <laughs> and pip pip to you sir, as uh, our characters today might say. Absolutely. And given the fact, you know, some of the nautical writing in this book reminds me of like Patrick O'Brien's Master and Commander. Uh, hmm. Huzzah, I think is appropriate for sure. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. Today, everybody, we're going to be taking you through our look at and review of Erskine Childers 1903 spy thriller novel, The Riddle of the Sands, which was quite uh, an important text and an influential text, Josh, upon its publication at the start of the 20th century, wasn't it? Yes, it was very popular when it was published. Uh, it's considered by many one of the first spy novels, even though you could argue there were spy novels before then by other writers. Uh, it was kind of the one that really started the idea of not these perfect gentlemen, almost James Bond individuals who get into these mm -hmm. situations for mm -hmm. their own reasons. But basically the idea of like the boys club land uh, is the term that I read in the introduction to the novel of just like these young British men getting caught up in this these adventures and showing their yeah. patriotism. And this is something that's been kind of a feature of spy novels uh, going forwards is the idea of the patriotism and serving your country. Um, mm -hmm. And particularly in 1900s with like these great superpowers existing, you have the German empire, Austro-Hungarian empire under, and then you have the British empire and then the waning French empire and everyone else wanted a piece of land and you have nationalism already. You know, you, before that you have nationalism in Italy in the late and 19th Greece. century and Greece and now you're having nationalism starting to build in Serbia. So right now the world is a powder keg, you know, and this is when this <laughs> really book was is. published. Yeah. But we can't dog the resilience. And this is kind of what this story is kind of about, is about the patriotism of serving and the serving your country, uh, despite, you know, your own inhibitions and your own weaknesses and flaws, you're able to persevere and do that. And that's kind of mm -hmm. what the story is all about. And I feel like I'm kind of putting a cap on the whole episode here, but stories, uh, <laughs> stories like this, you know, they have that passionate background behind them um, kind of flare me up. So, you know, mm -hmm. hey, I'm in good. the moment. Good. I'm in the moment. Absolutely. I'm in the Nothing wrong with that, buddy. Um, this, this was a novel that did that at the time. I mean, it, it, it shot its writer to, you know, to celebrity status for a little while there. And today, Josh, we've got a different sort of format for the show. It's still going to involve some facts, a summary, and a review. But because the character of the author, Erskine Childers, has such an interesting life, which in some ways parallels the narrator of the book, you had the idea to present almost like a, a separate episode on the life and times of the author himself before we get into the summary and the review. So it's kind of a two-part episode we've got today, isn't it? I would say, yeah, that, that's a good way to describe it. Erskine Childers, a uh, very interesting individual to say the least. I have a lot of information about him. And as I talked to you previously, because um, before we started recording, was that I wanted to parallel Carruthers' journey from being this one person to a volunteer spy for his country by the end of the story uh, to how Erskine Childers started and how he ended. And yeah. the yeah. biography that I'm about to present on Erskine Childers, while we will talk about, you know, his writing his publication um, and, you know, the world at the time of when he was writing uh, Riddle in the Sands, we're also going to talk about his life in general 
uh, because it's quite a fascinating one and uh, probably even more exciting than the book he wrote. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't give some time over to him. Not to say the other authors don't also deserve their time, but we're used to offering you uh, fast facts, right? Where we do 5, 10, maybe 15 minutes on the life and times and the publication of a story. But uh, for this one, Josh has, uh, has really gone to town there. He's got some, some great information um, that fill in a lot of uh, Erskine Childers' life. And it's important... I guess because although the book published in 1903 came from an earlier part of his life, politically speaking, uh, his life turned out very, very differently to how the characters in this book are kind of presented, even if there are parallels between himself and the narrator of Carruthers that you allude to. So just from the outset here, everybody wanted to say that the episode's going to take a little bit different format to what you're used to. We're going to have maybe 30, 45 minutes on Childers and then we'll get into what you're used to, our chat about the, the, the pipes themselves and uh, a little summary of the story. Okay, so yeah, we hope you enjoy a, it. It's a supersized episode. <laughs> it's a supersized which, which episode. Is, which, yeah. which, which I think, you know, like we haven't been really doing a lot of output like we want to lately. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think you guys are deserving of it. So we hope you enjoy it. Yeah. I would though just like to say, Josh, at the, at the start, you know, it's it's been a little while since we've had uh, an episode here. It's a busy time at work for both of us. And yes. as we lean into the summer, we're really excited because we're going to get a couple of uh, good episodes in, in pretty quick mm -hmm. succession. We got another uh, LTP Noir episode that's uh, going to drop shortly. And we've got a couple of short reads that we're going to entertain folks with over the summer, keep them busy. And hopefully some good recommendations in there uh, for listeners. Yeah, and um, I think LTP Noir is going to be fun because I'll be introducing the listeners to uh, Robert Siodmak, who to me is probably one of the greatest noir directors ever. I will be introducing him not by one of his most famous films like The Killers or even The Phantom Lady, but I'll be introducing him via Crisscross, which is mm. considered it's, it's growing into a cult status of being probably one of the best noirs ever made. So yeah. I'll be looking at Crisscross, and uh, you know, and, and we'll be discussing that. So it'll be a really yeah. fun episode that will drop soon. I'm looking forward to that. I really like the time. Uh, I like that song, um, I Missed the Bus by Criss Cross, when they wore their jeans on backwards. You remember that? That's a good one, man. So uh, I, I look forward I to seeing how that. you can... <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> you can remember what part this. that was in the film. I'm trying to remember <laughs> okay. now. Director's was, Cut. Yeah, maybe Director's Cut. I can see Yvonne DiCarlo dancing to that because she was a dancer. So maybe that will fit in, maybe. Uh, right. You, okay. can always, you can always <laughs> edit that into like the episode if you want to because, you know, yeah. that's what you do. So... Go ahead. <laughs> it is, yeah. Right. Uh, I think preamble's over. It, it's preamble time to crack on here with um, with the riddle of the sands. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us. Uh, we're looking forward to the summer we got of reading and sharing with you some great stories. Uh, at the end of this episode, we'll reveal a couple of those titles, and uh, we'll look forward to, to what's coming up next. But for now, sit back, relax, and uh, yeah, let's get into this early spy thriller from 1903, this prophetic adventure, The Riddle of the Sands. All right, so much like the protagonist, or one of the protagonists, if you could say, of The Riddle of the Sands, uh, Carruthers, Robert Erskine Childers, or Erskine Childers, which, which was his professional, his pen name, uh, sort of had the same arc. If you, think of if you think of Carruthers, he starts out as a despondent foreign, uh, sorry, 
civil servant and, you know, he's unhappy in the life where he is. And then he gets a letter from a friend who was really just really a schoolmate to him and not much, but he still takes mm-hmm. the guy up on his, on his, on, on his offer to, you know, to go hunt duck and all this sort of stuff. And then he goes on this great adventure where by the end of it, he's volunteering as a spy essentially for his country. So that's quite a right. leap from where he begins and where he ends. Mm-hmm. Well, let's look at the author of, and the creator of that character, Carruthers, Erskine Childers. So Robert Erskine Childers was born in Mayfair, London in 1870. Uh, his father, Robert Caesar Childers, was a, a translator and an Orientalist. He was a famous Orientalist scholar. And he came from an ecclesiastical family as well. They were definitely like doing well in the middle class and in, and in mm-hmm. their backgrounds and stuff, you know, uh, for working for like, you know, universities and for the government and whatnot. Now, his mother came from an Anglo-Irish uh, landowning family in Glendalow House, uh, which is in County Wicklow, Ireland. So Anglo-Irish background, uh, English background. On his, so, so basically on his father's side, he's English. On his mother's side, he's Anglo-Irish from what's called the Protestant ascendancy, essentially mm-hmm. in, in Ireland, where like basically this is someone who would 100% support the Union of Ireland and Great Britain, uh, go British imperialism. That was pretty much the world that Erskine Childers was born into. And how he ends up at the end of his life, uh, basically dying for the Republican cause. Uh, mm, it's is, remarkable. It is remarkable. Like how you end up that way is just incredible given, you know, where you start. But things things in life can change you and transform you into the person who you become. And Absolutely. There are several factors. I, I, I Going over his bio, biographical information, I would say there's several factors involved that leads him to his fate. Mm-hmm. And one of the principal things would be that at the age of uh, six, his father died of tuberculosis. His mother, Anna, died six years later. She was hospitalized. And then, and then it, by the time he was 12, she had died. And so as a yeah. second son of five children, he was sent to live with his mother's family, uh, the Bartons, in Glendalow, County Wicklow. And... This was a well-to-do Irish Protestant family. Uh, they had wine interests in France that bared the family mm-hmm. name. So they were doing quite well for themselves. And uh, they were at the top of that, you know, of the heap. And it came to, like, uh, sure. who ruled in, in, in Ireland, um, a very prominent family. So the tension that would develop into his hardline Irish republicanism hasn't really developed yet. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. only this move to Ireland is the first step. Now... He attended a, a, a boys' school, Halliburton College, and then eventually he found himself at Cambridge University studying the classics as well as law. While he was there, he became the editor of the Cambridge Review, a university magazine, and this is also where he published his first stories. Um, if you recall, in the Riddle of the Sands, he does mention Sherlock Holmes once or twice, or at least Carruthers refers to him, and he wrote. And this probably is a reference to. Uh, this is probably a reference to Childers writing light detective fiction for the university magazine. And that's kind of how he started cool. out. Yeah. He wasn't a very handsome man and he did not have a pleasant speaking voice, but he did still, because of his influence, become the head of the Trinity College Debating Society. He admired his cousin, Hugh Childers, who was a member of the British cabinet. In 1890, uh, he had a whole commission on home rule, uh, which is essentially... Ireland is independent from 
England. It has its own government, but it's still, you know, a, sort of like almost like the dominion of Canada. It's a, its mm -hmm. own dominion within the Commonwealth. So that's yeah. kind of what he saw as home rule as a solution to all of the tension that was going on at the time in Ireland. Sure. Yeah. Was that that would be the best thing to do because that would satisfy both parties, or mm -hmm. you would think it would, anyways, right? I mean, You'd that's kind of yeah, yeah. But as we've learned recently from uh, Quebec sovereignty within Canada, that doesn't always work. Yeah, no, it does not. It definitely does not. It's a gesture, but it's not a gesture that's going to sit well with uh, thousands and thousands of families and workers. So even though he was an admirer of his cousin, he was not actually supporting home rule at this time. That was something that he would do later in his career. He actually spoke virulently against it in debate topics. Um, perhaps, you know, he's playing devil's advocate. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, Curious. He never, he, yeah, he never became like a, a, princi like a, a principal scholar or in, uh, at, at Trinity, but because he, he developed a sciatic injury uh, while walking uh, one day, and, and that basically plagued him the rest of his life. It kind of mm -hmm. lamed him a little bit. Yeah. So he kind of dragged, dragged know, Josh, himself around. Mm -hmm. If I just go back to what you were saying there about how in and on the debate team and as kind of president of that club, um, he, he never spoke up in support of home rule. That might also have been, you know, ameliorated by the environment like he could very well have just been adjusting to the fact that he's at a premier english university and yes. regardless of what what kind of dogma or beliefs might be predominant around him uh out with his family i mean out with that sort of high anglican family then i feel like maybe he was just trying to play the english card in england even if you know what i mean like to, to keep safe to keep safe and to keep uh you know expected you know what's what's expected of you uh, yeah. Because yes, I mean you're you're entitled to broaden your mind, but not not to such an extent that it's going to be treasonous, not to such an extent that it's going to be harmful to yourself or to others or to be propagandist, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's assuming he harbored those feelings at that early age. Like you, you, you know, we don't know. As I, I presume you're going to go on to say these things developed, and there were things that enabled that that fate. Uh, and that transition in his life. But it is curious to think that as part of an English institution, he's probably not going to go out there and wave the free Ireland flags just yet, you know? No, absolutely. If he does have thoughts about it at the time, it's very conservative. Uh, mm -hmm. One of his uh, friends, Basil Williams, uh, who he would later serve together in the Boer War, uh, did mention that it was only during that time period that they would start discussing, you know, about or be, they would at least be critical in their discussions about how the British was handling the situation in South Africa, which sort of mm -hmm. slowly diverted them towards a more liberal look at politics than being like, you know, very kind of hardcore imperialists uh, as sure. they started out. Yeah. So yeah. it's those kind of experiences, you know, especially war, for example, that would, you know, slightly change your perspective in, in that sense. Uh, yeah. Slightly or extremely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mentioned the sciatica. It was very important in his life, I believe, in his life is because this kind of prevented him from being the athlete in university. Uh, he, so he, he, wanted to be, he wanted to get into rugby, but he couldn't do it because of this sciatica. So what ended up happening is that uh, he, became a, he actually became a very proficient rower. And this, I really believe, Bill goes into his, his eventual uh, hobby, which is his love for the sea and sailing. Hmm. Now, from Tr Trinity, he got his law degree, 
uh, and he wanted to work with with Cousin Hugh in the British Parliament as an MP. Uh, he became a junior committee clerk in 1895 after passing entry examination. Uh, but and then and there, what he would do in the House of Commons, he would basically prepare bills and proposals for you know of the day. Essentially, that's essentially what he would do: is kind of a clerk in that sure. sense, an assistant uh, to the business of the day that's being held in the House of Commons. Now, the sailing came from his school friend uh, Walter Runciman. Uh, he encouraged. I guess because seeing that how he was good at rowing and whatnot, he he encouraged Childers to take up sailing. Now Runciman had his own yacht, and he would take, and he took Childers out with him, and this allowed Childers to learn the fundamentals of seamanship as Runciman's deckhand. In 1893, even before he got his law degree, he bought his first yacht, Shula, and he learned how to sail it in the Thames estuary. He sold it in 1895 because he bought a Dublin Bay waterway, which is a type of like small sailing, one person sailing vessel that was used in Ireland. It was a popular model. I couldn't really mm. read much about what that was because how it was described. It, it kind of sounds a lot like those kind of sailing vessels you see like in the Olympic Games, in the Summer Olympic Games, you know, those small sails. Yeah, are, are those yeah. catamarans, like I don't know the type of them, what, exactly what they are. But if anyone you know knows exactly what a water wig is, or uh, please let us know. I would be curious to learn more about it. But essentially, he goes through a purchasing of all these different ships uh, throughout his life. In the water wig, he and his friends from college they would go around and sail on that. Uh, eventually, he would uh, he would take a friend's uh, ship, the half deck Marguerite, across the English Channel. And in 1897, he did cruise the Frisian Islands and Norderney and uh, the rest of the Baltic with his brother Henry mm. on a 30 foot cutter called Vixen. Wow, so, I was wondering that because yeah. of how well researched the text is. I figured that he must have been there with uh, you know with mapping of his own before writing this story because boy he, he knows this environment really well he definitely demonstrates a proficiency for mapping for nautical mapping and nautical terminology that is for sure and you can see why based on that experience right yeah totally it was a hobby of his and turned to a passion yeah yeah now eventually he ends up with his prize yacht by 1914 he has this ship called the asgard um and he used this in 1914 to smuggle 900 Mauser model 1871 rifles. And when I say Mauser, that's German rifles, um, wow. as, as well as 29,000 black powder cartridges to the Irish volunteers movement at Howth County, Dublin. So he smuggled wow, okay. in his yacht. Yeah, that's a long way the, away from the debating club. Exactly. So I'm just going to tell you how we went from there <laughs> to there. So what happened okay. in between there to get to this conclusion? Okay, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's really the big question here. Um, a cool fact about the Asgard is that it was acquired by the Irish government as a sail training vessel in 1961. And if you go to the National Museum of Ireland, it's currently exhibited there. Oh, cool. Yeah, because this whole smuggling run was part of a whole fleet of Irish uh, sailors who helped smuggle the guns into Ireland. And I believe a lot of these guns were used in the Easter Rising in 1916. Wow, very cool. Now, Michael Collins and all them, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So now, uh, the next step in his life, I think that was pivotal. I already talked about, he did serve in the Boer War in 1903. Uh, he was part of what's called the CIV, the City Imperial Volunteers. And uh, I remember we had a conversation with uh, Jeff Chapman from Bomb by Numbers, 
we were talking about shoulders to him and Jeff was saying how he had this metal he didn't recognize and the metal that Jeff was able to figure out what it was, mm-hmm. M-E-D-A-L, just to clarify, uh, he's like yeah. the metal expert among us and essentially, uh, yeah, it's for the City Imperial Volunteers, it's distinct metal that he that, that they had. Uh, in one particular instance, he came under fire, uh, three days of skirmishes and he helped defend his column effectively. Wow. Uh, but he left... Uh, but he, and sorry, that wasn't 1903. That was 1900. Sorry, my bad. Because 1903 is when he publishes uh, The Riddle in the Sand. So that doesn't track. So sorry about that. But he was working on The Riddle of the Sands around that time, uh, just in fragments, essentially. Um, mm. So he, evacu- he was evacuated out of Pretoria in South Africa in, in August 1900 because of Trenchfoot. Uh, which his brother also had as as well, I believe, um, or something similar to a, a foot injury that was similar. At this time, though, he was a loyal servant of the empire. Despite me mentioning him and his friend ba- Basil Williams, you know, discussing, you know, like was this handled well? You know, are, are we yeah. being are our lives being wasted for this cause? You know, of imperialism. You know, I, I can kind of see where you know the people of Ireland, people of Ireland, are even talking about. You know. So you can argue that Riddle of the Sands was published while he was still a hidebound imperialist. Okay, uh, that I think so. Be- I think well, yes, I do think so because it, and, if what you say is true, the Asgard was only built in nineteen oh five. So he did a lot of that stuff after the publication of the book, and the book certainly is is pro union. It's very interesting how he got the Asgard, um, mm-hmm. and that's it's a beautiful that- boat. I was just looking at a picture of it uh, on the Ireland. Uh, uh, the, the museum there in Dublin, you know, like it's a really nice looking boat. I don't know if this is going to come through very well on the camera for you, but. Oh yeah, that is very nice. That is a very nice ship. It kind of reminds me a bit of, um, cause I was, reminds me of this, of the Santana a bit, which was uh, Humphrey Bogart's yacht. It has got that kind of very sleek, sleek design to it. That's pretty cool. Interesting. There was a restoration project uh, completed in 2021 on the Asgard and it's uh, quite, quite the tourist uh, attraction there. So something to yeah. put on your list, huh? Now that we've read the book and we know a bit more about shelters, but please continue. Yeah. If I'm ever in Dublin, I'll definitely check out the museum and check out the Asgard. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So how he got the Asgard is leading into uh, the next big factor in his life towards Irish Republicanism. And this is his first and only wife. So in 1903, he went to the United States as part of a reciprocal visit between his Honorable Artillery Company of London and the Honorable Artillery Company of Massachusetts of Boston. Because this is 1900s. We're in the Teddy Roosevelt era, you know. So you know how Teddy Roosevelt wanted to big the, build a big Navy for the for, uh, United mm-hmm. States and everything like that, right? So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm beginning to, you know, this is the time where America kind of is starting to develop its own imperialist view of things. Alexander Hamilton would be very happy. Um, he would. <laughs> but... Um, one of his family members who lives in, in, in Boston got him the introduction to a Dr. Hamilton Osgood, who was a wealthy and eminent physician living in Boston. Now, Osgood, of course, would have been useful because of, you know, of children's sciatica, his, his lame leg, that sort of thing. Uh, it, that's something that he would have needed at that time, you know, so that he could be able to, to function. Because for something like that, we're always in pain or in discomfort you want to make sure that you have the best drugs. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I'm pretty sure Osgood was good in supplying that. But what happened is that Osgood invited him to a dinner at his house. And there he met Osgood's daughter, Mary Alden Osgood, or Molly, 
as she was known. Molly was a well-read Republican, capital R, Republican-minded mm-hmm. Harris. And this isn't the Republicans that we know of today. This is the Republicans of like older school Republicans, kind of still of the party of Lincoln, you know, very Republic-minded uh, in, in, in that sense, uh, kind of attitude. She was very well-spoken, very intelligent, very articulate, and uh, he fell in love with her. He extended his stay in Boston, and the pair were married at Boston's Trinity Church. And even his cousin, Robert Barton, whom he lived with after his parents died, uh, traveled over to be his best man. She went back to him, uh, t- to London, and he resumed his position in the House of Commons, uh, because at this point, he was an established author. Uh, he published, um, you know, The Riddle of the Sands, and he got, became quite popular because of it. And Molly loved it because this gave her access to the political establishment in London. And so yeah, this is how she slowly thinking. begins mm-hmm. to rid shoulders of his, you know, his his failing imperialism. It's weakening now, you know, like mm-hmm, he's been mm-hmm. through the Boer War. He saw how that was handled by England. He's already been moved to Ireland and grew fond of that country. He sympathizes with the cause there, even though he doesn't quite agree with it. And he thinks there's a better solution. But now he has Molly here who is basically, you know, feeding him, you know, this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. This Republican um, philosophy or this kind of edict. And of course, yeah. having been been to post-independent America, you know, he can see that that kind of bounty, uh, the bounty of spirit, I guess, of, you know, rallying behind your cause and reclaiming what was yours and, and, and all of that sort of thing. I mean, you mentioned Hamilton. It's just got me thinking, you know, of, the, of that sort of push towards, um, you know, characterizing yourself by your own terms instead of those which are given to you, granted to you, or controlled for you, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so they became quite the power couple um, in this sense. So, so he was totally drinking the Kool-Aid at this point, or he was starting to drink the Kool-Aid anyways. And because mm-hmm. she went sailing with them, she loves, she got into sailing as well. So they they sailed the Baltic together. Um, and the Asgard... Maybe they had Kool-Aid on deck. Maybe they no. did have Kool-Aid on deck, no. yeah. But ice cubes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Little swords that stir the cocktails, you know. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely I can definitely see that. So yeah, him and Molly cruised the Frisians again in 1903 uh, on, his, on this boat called Sunbeam, which he shared with other friends from his Trinity days. But his father but her father-in-law, but his father-in-law, Dr. Osgood, as a wedding gift for the couple, he arranged for a 28-ton yacht called Asgard to be built. Mm. So it was a wedding gift given, and that's how the Asgard came to be. So you have Childers symbolically, you know, marrying into this uh, Republican, American Republican family, Irish background already. And then you have, you know, what's going on in Ireland. And now he's been given the Asgard, which he eventually uses for smuggling weapons into Ireland by 1914. So we have those factors involved. Now, I think it's important to go to, just as a kind of a side journey, is we're going to go and take a look at the writing and the publications of Erskine Childers. I talked about his short short stories that he wrote in the, in the Cambridge Review. Uh, his first release was a book called In the Ranks of the CIV, and that was about his experiences in the Boer War. And he did not attend it for publication because these were letters that he sent to his sisters uh, about mm. his time while he was in South Africa. And by 1901, he was already writing uh, riddle of the sands so while he was in south africa and from 1900 to like 1902 he wrote these letters to his sisters uh and by the way one of his sisters uh, his name was dulcibella mm-hmm. cool dulcibella so, yeah 
Belchabella, yeah. That was the name, that, that was the name of one of his sisters. So they, they they took all the letters that he sent and they brought it to a family friend, a uh, part of the Smith who was a daughter of the of the publisher of Smith Elder, which was a uh, I guess a local publication, uh, sorry, a, a local publishing house. And that's how they took his letters and they basically edited the letter into book form. And when he returned, uh, they he approved the print proofs for publication. And so Smith Elder published the book and it cool. caught the, because of the war war was going on. This caught the public's attention about the war and it sold a very good quantity in 1902. So as you can see, he's already growing in popularity and he hasn't even published Riddle of Sands at this point. Now that he began in 1901, it was a slow progression. He did it in pieces, uh, I guess, while he was on the front or whenever he could scribble, whenever he could. It was finished in by 1902, but when he sent the manuscript to Reginald Smith, that Smith Elder, uh, Smith Elder, uh, Reginald Smith returned it and he demanded extensive revisions before he could publish it. So, with the help of his sisters again, who were cross-checking the old manuscript and the new manuscript, the final version was published in May 1903. Huge success. Uh, he was even invited to join the Seville Club, uh, which is like the literary heart of London. And the book has went out of print. All the copy, original copies have all been sold. And in 2003, centenary editions were even published. Uh, the Observer, they included on the list of the 100 greatest novels of all time. And The Telegraph called it the third best spy novel of all time. I wasn't able to ascertain what the other two were, the mm-hmm. one and two in that list were, but that's a pretty good, um, that's, th- yeah. th- those are strong. That's a legacy. That's a legacy. Yeah. Absolutely. And Winston Churchill credited as the re- credited that book as the reason that the Admiralty, because he was he because before he was Prime Minister of England way later, he was the first Lord of the Admiralty. And he decided to establish naval bases at Invergordon Rossith on the Firth of Forth, as well as Scapa Flow at Scapa Flow in the Orkney Islands. And which is very uh, prescient because Scapa Flow plays a big part in the Battle of the Atlantic in the Second World in the Second World War. So certainly does. Yeah. So very, very interesting. Very interesting. The Royal Oak and the sinking of the Royal Oak in October, wasn't it? Yeah, lots right. of Royal Oaks in uh, here second in Ottawa. Second World War as well. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a pub. Uh, but so yeah, you have Churchill talking about him now. Churchill has final words to say on Childers much later. And um, they differ very much from the attitude he's describing here. <laughs> That's for sure. Josh, Josh, this might be a good moment just to pop this in here because mm-hmm. um, while I was reading the book and now certainly listening to you, I'm reminded of Conan Doyle's feelings about the Navy. Remember that he was really outspoken about how ill-prepared the British sea forces were, defense as well as ships and vessels. Um, and I'm wondering if... Because, of course, we brought this up in our episode years ago when we dealt with the Bruce Partington plans, that short story, and the context thereof. Which Uh, kind of reminded me of that, especially with the whole planned sort of invasion from the Baltic, absolutely. So I'm wondering how how big a voice Conan Doyle had at the time um, when Childers was writing and kind of proffering through his characters the same sort of threats, the same sort of warnings, the same sort of caveats about that. Because Conan Doyle was very outspoken. In fact, he wrote a letter which was intercepted by the German high commander at the time 
uh, talking about how ill-equipped the British defences were. And that was one of the things that was instrumental in the commander's U-boat plan, which yes. was to do an earlier attack than what we saw with the with the Wolfpack in World War One. So I think it's really interesting how there's these Conan Doyle links, but I wonder what came first, you know, the Doyle or <laughs> the Childers. I think Childers came first because Partington plan, if I'm not mistaken, comes from his last bow, which is a little bit later on. But yes. he, he Doyle would have almost certainly loved this book. I think we're safe in saying that. Oh, 100%. And we know, for example, like even like he probably read Childers' book too about the, the, the uh, this, uh, about the, the CIV, the city imperialist. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because Arthur Conan Doyle also wrote about the Boer War. Mm-hmm. And well, he was there. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there's, and the fact that Childers mentioned Sherlock Holmes in mm-hmm. Riddle of the, mm-hmm. of the Sands, to me, I, I'm sure, and he wrote detective fiction. At, in the late 1800s, you know, in the late 1890s, when he was on the Cambridge Review, I guarantee you he was a Conan Doyle fan. Yeah. And both of the characters, Holmes and Davies, both use the same reference guides. Did you notice that? No, I didn't catch that. No, that's yeah, cool. Yeah, they both, because they, at one point Davies says to Carruthers, pick me up the, whatever it is, the Boudicca's or whatever it was from, from the shelf, which is the same thing Holmes uses when he's looking to reference tri- uh, train train tables and stuff. It's not the Bodkers. Bodkers is something different. That's a guide to the city. Uh, but yeah, I, I noticed that and made a note of it because it's quite funny. Yeah. Anyway, let's uh, let, let's move on. Sorry. Uh, yeah. And just to put a final note on um, the Real of the Sands influence, it influenced John Buchan to write 39 Steps. So, and you can kind of definitely see that in his writing mm-hmm. because oh, yeah. we have the main yeah. character in, in, in the 39 yep. Steps coming from a civil servant background, that. much like Carruthers. So, yeah. good important cool. points. He wrote a book on cavalry warfare, which he kind of was suggesting it's a bit outdated and had to be modified. And that was controversial at the time. But one of his main publications uh, was The Framework of Home Rule. This was published in 1911. And his principal argument, uh, it was economic in nature. And basically, it suggests an Irish parliament would be responsible for making fiscal policy to the benefit of the country and would hold dominion status, much like Canada. So for those of you not in the know back home, uh, Canada is is comprised of British territories and provinces that eventually formed their own dominion together uh, in 1867? 67, yep. 67, the Charlottetown Accords, right? So, and that's how Canada became an independent nation. We're part of the British Commonwealth here in Canada, uh, but... At the same time, so we still, you know, have allegiance to the to the to England, but we're not, but we're still independent from them because we, even though we have a parliament and we have a governor general as representative of His Majesty, we're independent, but we're still connected to the Commonwealth. And I think that's what he kind of saw for Ireland was the best compromise for them to be independent. So they ran their own affairs, but they would still, you know, be connected to the crown. He published this in 1911, and the thing is, is that the Liberal Party uh, in uh, England were very much welcoming this attitude because they were much they were very pro home rule because that was their big platform of getting into power in England was was the home rule and they would be able to fill many seats for themselves by having home rule attached to the Liberal Party so they would be able to get more seats in the House of Commons because of this but apparently he underestimated the opposition in Ulster which is of course the nine counties of Ulster is what we today call Northern Ireland. No, I think it's actually six of remaining Ulster counties are in Northern Ireland, I believe, because there was like nine originally, and then only and six, I think, stayed in within uh, part of Great Britain, if I'm not mistaken. 
mm-hmm. I guess the bulk of what is Ulster, uh, they had their unionists who were opposed to home rule, uh, and they were very hard-headed about it. The Scottish Presbyterian background, the Protestant ascendancy there, they wanted Ireland to be part of the union no matter what. So there was a lot of, of opposition there compared to what was going mm-hmm. on in Ireland, where they were very much for home rule in, in some capacity or any form of independence, really. So I mentioned Basil Williams, who, who was his partner, in, in, who was his friend in the Boer War, who was also his biographer uh, later on. They started as Tories. They ended up being more liberal because of it. You have Molly, who is a descendant of passengers from the Mayflower. So you're talking hardcore American republicanism right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have his cousin, uh, Robert Barton. Now, Barton's first big moment when it came to uh, Childers' life is that he and Childers took a motor tour uh, to the south and west of Ireland uh, and what they, uh, what are the main agricultural centers. And they took note of the incredible poverty there. And when he came back, he basically said, I have no choice but to support home rule for Ireland. He was no longer a unionist. So all of this came to be. And so he aimed for the parliamentary seat of the naval town of Devonport. So that's what he would do. He would support uh, home rule with the Liberal Party. He resigned his post from the House of Commons. And then basically he aimed for the seat of the naval town of Davenport. Uh, but because of the threats of civil war that were building from the Ulster Unionists, the Liberal Party decided to start cutting, they were thinking of cutting loose some or all of Ulster from their notion of a self-governed Ireland. So they did not want to have Ulster involved because they were being too belligerent about it. And that he greatly disagreed with. He felt that Ulster should also be part of the whole independent Ireland and not separated from that. So he left the party as well as his candidacy because of this. Now, the Liberals introduced a home rule bill in 1912 that would pass into law in 1914, but an act of parliament and something called World War I kept that dormant. Um, it was amended to exclude six of the nine counties of Ulster. So the home rule thing was supposed to go through, but because of World War I, it was, it was basically put on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And by this point, though, he left the party. He went on his own. He, he was 100% for home rule. And as I said, this is when 1914, he's smuggling guns to Irish nationalists, you know, across the English Channel. So he, you can see the steps now of which he has been radicalized. Mm-hmm. Uh, it writes itself. The ending kind of writes itself. It really does. Now, he served in World War I despite this. So, so after he resigned from the membership to the Liberal Party... Uh, he basically was an Irish volunteer and he served in the British Navy and he justified this because Britain's defeat of Germany would eventually help free small states like Belgium and Serbia. And Molly pushed this as well. She saw the British empire as a possible force of good because it would be able to free England from Ireland as well. That was sorry, able to free Ireland from England. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) different power switch there. Um, he did serve in world war one he was involved in planning invasion operations, uh, mostly because of Riddle of the Sands. Uh, they took him up on that greatly. Uh, even Churchill even had him c- come up with basically a plan to invade Germany across the English Channel in the opposite direction. But what really kind of chuffed him was how the British treated the Easter Rising, uh, how violent they suppressed it. 
and about the fact that they would essentially force conscription for Ireland as well uh, in World War I. And that was essentially something that he could not forgive. And by that point, he was even bitter about home rule. He called this the extension of the military conscription insane and criminal. After World War I, he had a bout of influenza. And in March 1919, he was sent to rest back at Glendallow. So back to his family home that he lived in for the past 30 years or so, you know, when he grew up, when he, after his parents died, uh, that's where he grew up. So he was sent, so he, so instead of going back to London and Chelsea, where he lived with Molly, he recovered at Glendallow with his cousin, Robert Barton. And this point, Robert Barton, the same man who drove him around, you know, Ireland and influenced more of, of the Irish Republicanism in him. Uh, Robert Barton introduced him to a man named Michael Collins, uh, who was essentially the leader of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Uh, Collins himself had just got out of jail because he took part in the Easter Rising. And through Collins, um, Childers was introduced to Sinn Féin president, Emin de Valera. So at this point, he realized that his moderation for Dominion uh, I, it will not work. Uh, he's, he's, this, he's fully radicalized at this point. He was invited to meet the Sinn Féin leadership in Dublin, but was wary of that leadership because of how aggressive they were and hostile they were uh, and how they divided they were. One of the proponents who would eventually agree to home rule or the Irish Free State was Arthur Griffith. And he disliked Childers because he was undecided if Childers was a renegade, it was just this traitor to Britain, or even a British spy. So he suspected him. And Childers lived in Dublin, and he was appointed to the Irish delegation to the Paris Peace Conference in hopes of emphasizing home rule, but that fell flat. Um, Molly moved back, moved to Dublin to live with him. So they established themselves there with their children. And he was made secretary of the Irish delegation for the Anglo-Irish Treaty in London in autumn of 1921. And this is basically what led to what's called the Irish Free State. He opposed the final draft of the agreement where it required Irish leaders to take the oath of allegiance to the British monarch. Uh, but he was overruled. And the agreement was presented to the Dali, which is the Dial, which is sort of, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but this is sort of like the Irish legislature in Dublin. And it was heavily debated in late 1921 and early 1922. He denounced it all the way through. Uh, people called him a renegade even then that, you know, you're just trying to cause war between England and Ireland. You're rejecting this. But he was rejecting it because of the Oath of Allegiance, uh, because Ulster would not be involved he was very upset about that. He wanted to have Ireland all as one, and this was not happening. So he was outvoted, and and basically he said that by agreeing to this, on its own volition, Ireland is relinquishing its independence. The treaty, it divided Sinn Féin, uh, the, Irish, the main Irish Republican Party, and the anti-treaty members formed the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and fought the free state forces uh, who wielded British artillery against them. Where the IRA was headquartered in Dublin, the four courts, that was attacked and sent everybody on the run, including Childers. He ended up in County Cork as well as County Kerry, producing IRA bulletins. So he's back being an editor again, but he's putting up pro-IRA bulletins everywhere. And this led to the Irish Free State's Minister of Justice basically saying, this guy is a leader of the rebels and needs to be captured. He's an instigator of a civil war. And even Childers, even though you know he believed in the Irish cause, the anti-treaty forces of the IRA, a lot of them did not like him because he was that bloody Englishman, as they called him. He did not fit in at all. He was half Irish, half English, and half 
Protestant Irish background. So you, he was kind of an outlier in this whole situation, but he was throwing his whole, like essentially his whole life, his previous life away for the Irish cause. And even they couldn't really trust him. The only person I think who really liked him based on what I've read is Emin de Valera. De Valera, who was an American himself, uh, is just one of those outliers who was, who was able to lead the cause because I guess they could view things from the outside, you know what I mean? Uh, through their own experiences. And even though he had military experience that we talked about, the Boer War, World War I, they used him for clerical purposes. He was known as Staff Captain Childers IRA. That's all he was. He was like manning a, a post. Now, what happened in 1922 is that Michael Collins was assassinated. Uh, he was, by that point, the leader of the Free State Army, essentially. And he was hunting down his former Irish Republican colleagues. And as soon as he was killed, the Free State intensified retribution against the rebels in September 1922 and announced what's called the Army Emergency Powers Resolution, which is essentially martial law. And so things got very violent in Ireland because of that. And a whole list of capital offenses were drawn up that would have you shot immediately. And one of those capital offenses was carrying a firearm without a license. And so what happened is Childers, he was captured at home in Glendallow, uh, where he fled to because he wanted to be close to De Valera and probably because maybe he was scared for his life from other IRA factions. I don't know, but that's what he was doing. He was put on trial and he was sentenced to death. He appealed, but lost and was executed by firing squad at Beggar's Bush Barracks in Dublin on November 24th, 1922. His last words were, take a step or two forward, lads. It will be easier that way. He even said kind parting words to his 16-year-old son, um, Erskine, who will later become the fourth president of the Irish Republic. Childers was buried there uh, at where he was shot, but later exhumed and reburied at a Republican cemetery at Glesnavon. Of Childers, Winston Churchill said, again, uh, against this is very different from what he said about him earlier regarding, you know, how influential Riddle the Sands was to the military development and defense of England. Churchill said of Childers, no man has done more harm or shown more genuine malice or endeavored to bring a greater curse upon the common people of Ireland than this strange being actuated by a deadly and malignant hatred for the land of his birth. That's quite a damning statement. Yeah. And Sounds least, pretty damning. And damning did he pay. Yeah. Emma de Valera said of Childers, he died the prince he was. Of all the men I ever met, I would say he was the noblest. So that is Erskine Childers, writer of Riddle of the Sands. His short, but interesting, intriguing, terrifying, and somewhat inspiring life. Yeah. Well, there you go. Incredible job there, Josh. I hope our listeners enjoyed that. I mean, I was quite quiet as you were reading that and presenting it to us. Uh, I know you're quite passionate about the British and Irish history. It certainly comes through. And I enjoyed uh, not not just the life and times of Erskine Childers through your filter, but also the other characters, the colored, colorful characters, uh, the historical names that kind of pop up in there too. It's interesting, isn't it, how... Uh, how closely linked some of these figures are that we think of as individuals separate and isolate from each other. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. Um, the world is smaller than we think it is, but it's just populated with a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And they're going to bump okay. into each other at some point. They are, yeah. Well, speaking of bumping into uh, one another, mm -hmm. why don't we, uh, yeah, let's get stuck into a summary, shall we? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kedge it out.
<laughs> okay. Some nautical terminology there for you. Carruthers, our narrator, is a bored and restless Foreign Service clerk working in London. Instead of enjoying an early autumn knees up with pals at a posh hunting lodge, he's delving deeper into the doldrums of public service, thanks, romantically, to a broken heart and, administratively, to a recent change in monarchy. Like Richard Hannay in Buchan's 39 Steps, which would come a few years later, Carruthers is looking for distraction, and he finds it when he's contacted by an old acquaintance from Oxford named Davies. Now, Davies is looking for a sailing partner to join him in and around the Baltic waters of North Germany. The bonds were never overly strong between the two men, outside of their familiar social circles, and a love of sailing. So at first, Carruthers resolves to shake the invite from his mind. Plus, at this time of the year, the Baltic is, well, Baltic. And yet, drawn by the promise of open water, duck hunting, and a wee bit of mystery, he can't quite seem to shake the idea from his mind. Two days after receiving the letter, Carruthers is given a leave of work and purchases transport to Hamburg. To hell with pining over pals and the past, he says, it's time to head for Germany and to the unknown. When he arrives in Flensburg, Carruthers meets Davies and his awkward yacht, the Dolce Bella, characterized by unique angles and tug conversions. He's surprised to learn that there will be no other crew, just the two of them. So any thoughts of a hands-off sail are quickly thrown to the wayside. There are some awkward moments between the two young men in the first few chapters, as Carruthers suspects Davies is keeping secrets, and Davies insists on, well, keeping secrets. This cold front of passive-aggressive nature eventually gives way to full disclosure, and with it, warmer weather between the two. Davies wants to go it alone, sans crew, you see, because he holds suspicions that the Germans are up to no good in and around the sandy channels of the Frisian Islands. Davies justifies his belief through the story of the Medusa, captained by a mysterious entrepreneur, Dolman, and their efforts to lure him into shallow shoals, ostensibly wrecking him. Davies further suspects that Dolman is a double agent, an ex-Englishman posing as a spy for the Germans. It doesn't make sense that he would attempt to kill Davies without some purpose or motive to protect a secret. When no one in the British government showed much interest in following up on Davies' concerns, though, he felt it his patriotic duty to proceed, and he took risk and reconnaissance into his own hands, enlisting the help of Carruthers as his number two. Unfortunately, waters are muddied a little as Davies met and fell in love with Dolman's daughter, Clara. But more on that later. The two friends, for I think it's safe to call them that by now, spend some time negotiating the sandy waters of the Frisian Islands. However subtle, prescient whiffs of Moby Dick emanate from the middle section of this novel as a lot of nautical chat and nomenclature fills the page in equal parts fascinating and mundane. Davies and Carruthers stop along the coast for stores, drink ale in pubs, chat with locals, and endure some late nights, all in the name of adding flesh to the bones of this conspiracy theory. Charting as they go, the pair slowly near the Isle of Memmert, site of a rumoured treasure recovery project. They learn that Dolman is involved in this excavation somehow, but they're warned away from the area by a German commander named von Brüning and his naval patrol boat. This elbowing only strengthens their growing belief in criminal activity, 
and Davies and Carruthers soon discover that Dolman was indeed an Englishman and evidently fled Britain in a hurry to take up his new life. Under the cover of thick fog, Davies navigates the Dolce Bello's rowboat from the relative safety of Norderni through the complex network of sandbanks and channels to inspect the Memmert site. Carruthers explores the island on foot and quickly comes upon a path that leads to a copse of buildings. He overhears von Brunin and Dolman talking about more than treasure, but captures only cryptic references to Chatham, Seven, and a variety of letters and numbers in amongst utterances of tides and times. In German, Carruthers also recognizes Wassertief, Schleppboot, and Eisenbahn, depth, tugs, and railway, respectively. Whatever is afoot, it's certainly a sizable operation. There is, finally, a reference to a dinner invitation made. Knowing them to be in the area, Carruthers supposes that he and Davies will soon be engaged by the group and invited. Where? To a harmless dinner? Or towards their destruction? Fears and excitement racing together, Carruthers takes these and other observations quickly back to Davies, and the two row their arms off, speeding to reach the Dolce Bella before the fog lifts and light returns to expose them. Carruthers and the reader share in their admiration of Davies here, as he expertly navigates the channels and fog back to Norderni, just in time. The Germans do not suspect anything. As predicted, von Brüning invites them both to Dolman's villa for dinner that evening. There, a chess game plays out, an exercise of chance and swagger disguised by social niceties. Carruthers is bold and reckless with his information, but he keeps the hounds off by professing curiosity in the treasure wreck, the cover story which his trip to Memmert has now blown open. This seems to do the trick, but von Brüning subtly cross-examines he and Davies to see if they might be exposed as spies. One interesting revelation that comes out of this meeting is the fact that Dolman may not be fully trusted by the rest of the syndicate, and he's been kept in the dark about precise rendezvous sites and the operation's next steps. Well, this plants a slight doubt in the mind of Davies and Carruthers as to Dolman's full role. Perhaps this English double agent isn't as dirty as they first suspected. In any event, all the dinner guests feel the air thick with misgiving and unspoken threat. To ease suspicions and help relieve the growing pressure, Carruthers plants some fake news and announces at the dinner table that he's been called back to England by the Foreign Office, so he must return to work, and there ends the sailing game. The real plan, however, is much different, and sees Carruthers go only as far as Amsterdam before doubling back to intercept the Germans at their rendezvous point. If Davies and his skillful navigating flexed the first hand of the plot's adventure muscle, Davies... Carruthers and his risk-taking are carrying the load in these later stages. A slight complication appears in the form of Boehm, an affable but annoying Dutch friend of the conspirators who accompanies Carruthers for part of the journey back. His presence is shed without incident in Amsterdam, and Carruthers does succeed in following von Brüning without being detected as he doubles back. He tracks him to a port where they get aboard a tugboat, where he and his conspirators get aboard a tugboat hauling a large barge. Carruthers sneaks on and hides as the convoy heads out to sea. While incognito, Carruthers finally untangles this riddle. The canals and the railways are being linked up by passages through the sifting sands and shallow waters of the North German coasts. 
These amalgamated, innovative waterways will transport men and arms across the country and away from the mainstream as Germany is preparing for a North Sea invasion of Britain's east coast. After grounding the tug, Carruthers escapes and rushes back to meet Davies and the Dolce Bella. Pressured now to flee before the Germans catch on, the pair managed to convince Dolman and his daughter that they should return to England with him. After all, once they spill their findings, von Bruning and his associates will assume Dolman spilled his guts. Davies and Carruthers overreach with the olive branch, though, offering him an immunity that they can't really authorize. As they sail across the sea, Dolman slips away quietly and jumps overboard electing to kill himself instead of facing the patriotic disgrace and probable arrest for treason. The book's epilogue, written by the so-called editor, outlines Dolman's fuller plan for invasion by revealing features of a report he prepared. A final note reassures the contemporary reader that the Royal Navy is urging haste and finally taking the threat of incursion seriously. And so we come to the end. Somewhere out there in the proverbial literary sea, enjoying the briny air upon the Dolce Bella, perhaps, Davies and Carruthers are smugly shooting ducks, or whatever else heroes do upon retirement from saving their countries in books. Or smuggling guns into Ireland. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too. <laughs> Well done. You were very frustrated about, you know, how am I going to adapt this, this, uh, the story of this complexity in terms of writing and structure? How are we mm. going to adapt this into a, you know, a machine gun rat-a-tat summary, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. you did a great job at that by excising, I think, stuff that just didn't need to be fretted about. And you pretty much did that in like one sentence about, you know, too much description about uh, about nautical terminology and navigating <laughs> yeah. sand dunes and sandbars. That, <laughs> that took that took care of about sixty pages, I think. Yeah, a little third of yeah. the book. Yeah. Just dead flesh, cut it off. All right. Well, that's that's the plot summary then of Riddle of the Sands. Let's uh, introduce our pipes, Josh. Our pipes are acronym for principles, investigation, perpetrators, environment, and supporting cast. How many points do we issue each of these categories? Five out of five. That's right. And that gives us a total index of 25 by which we rate our books here on Lighting the Pipes. So let's crack right into it with our principal characters, Josh. What did you make of Charles Carruthers and our friend Arthur Davies? So a bit of a hot take here. I'm going back to like the Sherlock Holmes stories. I think Carruthers is the main protagonist of the story. Um, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it's He's like, our narrator it, it, after all. Yeah, it's his first-person narration um, and that we are presented in the form of this report to the Admiralty in regard to the invasion scheme. Uh, Davies is like the means to which Carruthers finds the inner hero in himself, as well as a sense of national pride. Arguably, you could say even Davies is a plot device because um, mm -hmm. he doesn't really have any character development. You know, like Carruthers... Well, he is really, what he is. That's right. He is what he is. Carruthers discusses merely discovers what kind of man Davies actually is. That's right. And it That's inspires right. him as well. He's a supporting yeah. character, 100%. Like, no argument there. Um, albeit, it's a powerful, inspirational one. But outside of his determination to foil the German plot and save Clara, uh, and of course, bring her father to father's crimes to the light, um, he's, a, he's a guide for Carruthers to find himself. 
He's Sherlock to Carruthers Watson, but exists mm. within his own separate sphere because Carruthers Watson finds his own agency as the story progresses. You can look so at it that does, way. Yeah. Yeah. You the know. second half of the book is all Carruthers action and agency. And I mean, yes, he, he requires, he requires the, the seamanship from Davies and the, that very skillful navigation and timing and all of that stuff. But it's Davies that sits in the boat and waits, you know, as Carruthers tells us what happens. Yeah. 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 Now, well, what I'm saying, right, what I said right there seems kind of, you know, derogatory towards my feelings for for this aspect of the story. I, I actually love the bromance of Carruthers and Davies. Um, hmm. It was believable to me, you know, that like, you know, Davies was one of Carruthers' college mates who was like the outlier of that group. And he was pleasant to him at that time. But it was like Davies that latched on to Carruthers, but it wasn't reciprocated by Carruthers at the time. Yeah. Carruthers was pleasant. But he was more interested in his own social life at that time. There was mm-hmm. a girl, there was this girl that he was into. And even after Davies had left after college, uh, Crothers was into this woman, this, this suit, you know, the love of his life. <laughs> and he didn't get that suit. And so now he's basically, you know, stuck in a job that he hates in, in the doldrums. Um, mm-hmm. His social life is dismal after losing the suit to this girl. You know, he's despondent, you know, in this government posting. And he, but despite his lukewarm feelings towards Davies, he takes him up on the offer of the duck shooting, right? So he it's does. only when they progress through this adventure that Carruthers sees the greatness inside Davies that is now revealed. And in turn, he learns from Davies how to be a better man and a better patriot of his country, which is kind of ironic, too, if you think about it in the writing, because this is, how I think, how human um, – children's writing is and how well he captures humanity in his stories in my opinion despite you know some characters coming off somewhat maybe not as three-dimensional as i would like i think he has a good view of how humanity works and given his life i think you can see how people can be bounced around by their emotions right and Mm so while carruthers is you know going on his hero's journey davies is like he wants to stop dolman but he also wants to save clara because he's in love with clara as as it's kind of stated and it's still development. Yeah, for, stated, not developed. Yeah, stated. Yeah, stated. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And Carruthers sees this, but this is all part of Carruthers growing, becoming a more generous and open person because now he understands Davies now. He understands what kind of man he is. He's he's like, you know, he's sullen. He's introverted, obviously, but that doesn't mean he's not, a, he cannot be a good man. And Davies is, and sorry, and Carruthers is realizing this throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the narration provides us that Childers gives us, it, it provides plenty of meat into Carruthers' psyche and the development of his character from lowly clerk to mariner, adventurer, and a voluntary spy for his country. It was well told and it made me feel every step on the way. Like I p- completely enjoyed Carruthers' character. I immensely enjoyed it to be precise uh, and, and on, on, on that journey. I just wish Davies had a little bit more for how, how his own character for his, for his own character, because he already he was already developed as we as we just said uh, before he met Carruthers. It's just Carruthers had to discover him and see him for who he is. And so from that point on, it's Carruthers taking up the role of rescuing Clara, not Davies, to boot. Like Clark, he's the one that gets Dolman and Clara out of there immediately as soon as he gets back from the tug ride. So you know, to me, he was a force of agency throughout the story. And Davies was a force of agency prior to where Carruthers came in. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, And Carruthers takes it up. So I would say that in terms of, you know, comparison, yeah, like Carruthers is kind of a Watson to, sorry, uh, Davies is kind of a Watson to Sherlock's 
Carruthers. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I wanted to give this full marks because I love the bromance. I love the character of Carruthers. I found him an interesting character. I love how he changed mentally throughout the story, how he he overthrew pride and admitted he was wrong about things, admitted that Davies was a good man, that this is the right course of action. I believed every step of the way in Crothers' actions. Uh, Shoulders sold that to me perfectly, but I can't give it full marks. I can, I'll give it as high as I can, and that's four and a half out of five. Okay, well, I, I'm with you. I read it the same way as you do. Uh, I went for a four. I didn't go four and a half. I went for a four, which I think is a good mark. I agree with you that I, I think Davies could have been a little bit more developed, but also I'm probably uh, probably a bit of recency bias here as a reader because this is a story about Carruthers changing, as you say. It's not a story about Davies. Davies is developed when we meet him. It's more about finding out what's in his head. because And, and then I think Childers uses Davies to kind of downplay Davies. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Like, you notice how during the dinner party and at the bar or at the pub, when Carruthers is kind of being quite free and expressive with his words and and Davies gets mad at him because he uses too much. He's like, no, I don't think you should be that bold. Carruthers is like, look, man, like, yeah, exactly. You're the one who put me on this Poking the villain, you know? Well, he he does. He po- it's exactly what he does. He pokes the villain, and Carruthers does that so that they can progress with the story. But Davies kind of pulls back. So Davies, who went to get the help, then tells the help that no, you're doing too much. I don't want to, I don't want you to do this. Davies gets mad at Carruthers for being too aggressive and too proactive, which I find really funny when he buys in because it was Davies that wanted him there. I'm wondering if kind of as an outlier, kind of as an acquaintance of many people at Oxford, Davies was really good at reading people. These two men were not friends. They were acquaintances. And when Davies issued that, you know, please come and help me. I hope you'd like to do some duck hunting, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't tell him what he's really wanting him for. I wonder if Davies knew at that point that Carruthers would be an aggressive type, could be the mouth and the the balls that he didn't have to push it further. He uncovered it all. He unlock the mystery and the suspicion and then he needs a guy like Carruthers to prove himself and as we know from the beginning of this story like the 39 steps Carruthers is desperate to prove himself and to be a little bit bold and risky right yeah um so I mean I I I like them I like the way they kind of bounce off each other but I agree with you Davies isn't he he's active as an adjunct he's not active as a protagonist and yet I think you need him to be there in order for the protagonist, because in order for Carruthers to do his stuff, Davies has to lay it all out for him, right? Yeah. Um, it's kind of like uh, like a tag team, a wrestling match, right? One of them does a lot, then gets tired and hits the other guy in, and the other guy finishes the job. But <laughs> yeah, if totally. I could just if I could just read a a little bit here um, from early in the book, I think this is really nice. This is good repetitive writing style, but it also reflects this change, or I should say, maybe at this point, growing interest is a better expression. What page? Page 26 in in our editions. How it came about, I do not know, whether it was something pathetic in the look I had last seen on his face, a look which I associated for no reason whatever with his bandaged hand, whether it was one of those instances of clear vision in which our separate selves are seen divided, the baser from the better, and I saw my silly egotism in contrast with a simple, generous nature. Whether it was an impalpable air of mystery which pervaded the whole enterprise and refused to be dissipated by its most mortifying and vulgarizing incidents, a mystery dimly connected with my companion's obvious consciousness of having misled me into joining him. Whether it was only 
the stars and the cool air rousing atrophied instincts of youth and spirits. Probably, indeed, it was all these influences, cemented into strength by a ruthless sense of humor, which whispered that I was in danger of making a mere commonplace fool of myself in spite of all my labored calculations. But whatever it was, in a flash, my mood changed. And he, he does kind of do some to and, and fro in the first 50 or 60 pages of the book. Yes. But I, I, like, I like the writing there. It's very evocative. Um, it's very engaging. It kind of makes you sympathize with him because Carruthers admits to having his, his biases and admits to... Yeah, I, I think actually Carruthers is an open book in this book. I think he's quite honest about his foibles. And it's nice to see him turn... Maybe he doesn't turn away from the snobbishness that he possesses, but he does turn away from, I think, that judgment of his own kind. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's a really good passage to pick. And uh, this is one of the things in terms of the writing that I really love about Childers' style is that he captures the inner psyches of people so well. He's very intimate. It's very intimate in how he presents it. And it seems like it almost feels like it's like a piece of himself that he's revealing, you know, when he writes about the mindset of Carruthers and I really like that. It's just that when he gets into the nautical stuff and it's just like, it's almost like where like, you know, someone like, I don't know, I'm thinking of myself when I was a kid and I was always into like dinosaurs when I was a kid. Right. And I would, I would know everything about dinosaurs and I would tell every adult in the room about my, that, that, that encountered me about how much mm-hmm. I knew about mm-hmm. dinosaurs and they were really yeah. polite and friendly about it. But you know, at the same point it's going like, okay, okay, that's great, Josh. <laughs> that's great. Tyrannosaurus Rex. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. So when he talks about his, <laughs> like, I can tell he loves sailing and he loves nautical terminology and, and he wants to convey that in some of a kind of a verisimilitude in his writing. I just feel that, and maybe this is going into the second part of our pipes, but it, mm-hmm. I, I just feel that like he went a bit overboard. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No pun, in, well, pun intended. <laughs> pun, pun intended. <laughs> yeah. Pun intended. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see what else, uh, just before we, we leave um, the, the principles here. Uh, let's see. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Carruthers is a little bit petulant and haughty, but um, this, you know, his cold shoulder early on turns to adventure seeker pretty swiftly. He's impulsive and daring in the way that he speaks to both von Brunnen and to Dolman. This presumably is what Shelder's impression of an entitled Englishman is. And yet, even if there is a subtle jibe at the British entitlement, I will say in that the overall feel of Carruthers is of admiration because he takes matters into his own hands at important moments, particularly in the second half. Uh, I don't think I need to add anything to that. Um, These are fun characters and these are fun characters. The narrative voice, if you liked the narrative voice of Richard Haney in the 39 steps, if you want a, a guy who's after some daring do, you know, I think you'll be... I think you'll be smitten with Carruthers. He's he's fun to follow. And uh, don't let our preview of bogged down narration of nautical terms and whatnot, don't let that put you off Carruthers. Yeah. There's a lot of personable writing in this yes. book that, uh, that, that comes through. So yeah, uh, Carruthers is our protagonist. I agree with you. You went four and a half and I went for five. Well, what about the investigation? Well, no, you went for four, not five. I went for four. You went for four and a half and I went for five. Yeah, four. Five, like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Four, yeah. Four right. uh, investigation. All right. Well, if you, you know, if we put aside how it's structured, you know, you got the maps, you got the narration from uh Carruthers. Well, by the way, just, just on that point, I found those maps fucking useless. Like they yeah, are yes, yes, really yes, tough yes. to look at. It's like, you need to go read a fantasy novel to see literate yeah, maps, yeah. in my opinion. 
worked. I wonder if the first edition of this book had like, you know, the fold-out maps, which maybe they could have been a bit bigger. And because this is a reprint, I wonder if that's mm. just part of what's happened here. Anybody that's owns possible. the first edition of the book? Do you know, you know how, what do I mean? Like the thin paper kind of fold out in, in square yeah. quadrants. I wonder if there might have been a bigger one. Have you seen the first edition of the book? I saw a picture of it. It's like yeah, very, I haven't it's, seen like, one, it's almost like a, it's like a tome. It's, it's like thick. And oh, yeah. it's like, and, and, and so I'm wondering if maybe, cause it was a bit, a bigger size than your, than what your usual paperbacks are. Mm-hmm. It could very well have had like a quote unquote centerfold for the maps. You know what I mean? <laughs> it could have. Yeah. I mean, this Oxford world's classic we've got, it's great. There's a nice introduction and a good glossary and everything, but the text is quite small. So the paperback presentation, at least the one that Josh and I are using is, uh, is, is very good, but I wouldn't want like, I just think everything is kind of shrunk here in this book. And I'm wondering if the maps were also a uh, victim to that. But well, I wouldn't anyway. be surprised. I can see the maps being like one page each or two pages each, probably like a. Um... Yeah. Yeah. I just had the atlas with me. I just used my uh, my school atlas as I was reading it and I could totally blow up on the space. And obviously your Google Maps is good, but something nice still about looking through an atlas, isn't there? Yeah. Particularly when you're on an adventure literature like this, you're doing adventure literature. I kind of just kind of just remembered my own geography about the area and just kind of put it together, you know, the best I could with the maps there. I didn't really go get any other references besides that. And then again, you're also turning back to the glossary, you know, and trying yeah. to get the nautical yeah. terms right and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's... Well, I was a little bit comfort- comforted with this because although I found it a tough drag, as I'll tell you, um, I read Moby Dick su- pseudo recently. Oh, that's right. You did. Yes. And I am well... I was well prepared for <laughs> being stuck in the sands, shall we say, as the as the writer went on about how much he knew of ropes and riggings. You know, I was uh, I was prepared for it, but yeah, I remember. But I think my mom- you know, for people who are more nautically inclined than ourselves, I can see this really being a turn on. Do you know, because oh, it was a, it, the the book was interesting for a non sailor, um, and so I can only appreciate that it would have been great for someone who liked all of this stuff because they could relate yeah. on that extra level, you know? I was think of fans of people like C.S. Forrester or uh, even Patrick O'Brien mm-hmm. probably mm-hmm. really dig this book on that basis alone because Good of point. the detailing yeah. of, the, of the sailing, yeah. you know? Cause and that's the I, recency bias. I tried bias. to crack Patrick O'Brien because I, I really enjoyed Master and Commander, the film, and the nautical terms in that story was pretty in- intense. And I did hear about Moby Dick being similar in that fashion, so I just never really challenged myself yet. Like right now, I'm being challenged by, I'm trying to read War and Peace, but I'm so annoyed I have to go to the bottom and read the translation of the French in Mm -hmm. in the footnotes on each page. That gets kind of annoying after a while because Tolstoy has half his characters speaking in French. That's an impediment for me. (laughs) It shouldn't be for a Canadian, right enough, but it is. I'm... I'm from Newfoundland. I'm not from uh, French Canada. <laughs> I just, so I'm just winding you up, buddy. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I do live in Ottawa. Also, that's true. Um, 1903. I think we also have to recognize the recency bias here coming 120 years later. A lot of readers would be very, very familiar with sea travel or, or small crafts on the water. Uh, yes. Even if they didn't necessarily live through the coast, they're not taking the, you know, any anybody who leaves... Britain is on a boat, right? No. At this point. So th- there's no air travel, at least no passenger air travel. Um, and so maybe some of the stuff that we find is, is a bit dated or a bit, uh, a, a bit, you know, hobby heavy wouldn't be to the contemporary reader because they'd be more used to 
uh, being on boats, maybe. Yeah, we, we probably I do, take that transport for for granted. We probably do, absolutely. And I think you're right about the maps possibly being blown, uh, being shrunk, because like I can't even make out like where the land meets the sea. Like I, I get yeah, the really idea, tough. like. I get the idea now when you learn more about, you know, estuaries and whatnot, that if you look at even like on Google Maps or like the satellite maps, and I used to do that between, you know, I used to do that sometimes when I was on my break or whatever, I would go at work, I would go and, you know, just look at, look at Google, at Google Earth. And you can see, you know, like if you look where rivers come out into the ocean, it looks like there's actually like land where the river is, but that's only because the tide at the estuary has, has hasn't come in yet. So that's why there's sand everywhere. And you got to realize that when the tide comes in, that fills up again, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's yeah. the world, you know, like the seas are always moving. They're not a still static thing as we know. So those so it's kind of it's very interesting to learn about how sandbars and you know low tides and everything can can affect uh, nautical navigation and whatnot so it's, it's, it's uh, that's pretty cool that's, and I, I i definitely picked that up in this story that you know me too. In it, yeah the idea of like a labyrinth almost of like sandbars and little islets and mm-hmm. trying to make mm-hmm. their way you know t- to where they need to go so i found that i en- enjoy- enjoyable and i credit childers for that because um we could have got lost but he does bring the places to life um, and, you know, in terms of the investigation, I wonder if, if it might be worthwhile here. It's just a short section, but I'd, I would like to share um, a bit from an early stage in the book where the town of Sondenburg in Denmark mm. is described. I really like this section. If you're following with me, Josh, we're on page 45 here of this book. 45? Uh, right. I like this bit, though. And here... I had fascinating Sonderberg, with its broad-eaved houses of carved woodwork, each fresh with cleansing, yet yet reverend with age, its fair-haired Viking-like men with rosy, plain-faced women with their bullet foreheads and large mouths. I don't think that's terribly uh, complimentary, but uh, Sonderberg still Danish to the core under its Teuton veneer. Crossing the bridge, I climbed the Diebel, or the Dibble, dotted with memorials of that heroic defense, and thence could see the wee form and gossamer rigging of the Dolce Bella on the silver ribbon of the sound, and was reminded by the sight that there were stores to be bought. So I hurried down again to the old quarter, and bargained over eggs and bread with the dear old lady, pink as a debutante, who made a patriotic pretense of not understanding German, and called in her strapping son, whose few words of English being chiefly nautical slang, picked up on a British trawler, were peculiarly useless for the purpose. (laughs) Davies had tea ready when I came aboard again, and drinking it on deck we proceeded up the sheltered sound which in spite of its imposing name was no bigger than an inland river only the hosts of rainbow jellyfish reminding us that we were threading a highway of ocean there is no rise and fall of tide in these regions to disfigure the shore with mud here was a shelving gravel bank there a bed of whispering rushes there again a young birch tree or young birch trees growing to the very brink each wearing a stocking of bright moss and setting its foot firmly in among golden leaves and scarlet fungus. Like, we do get nice descriptive writing in this book. We do. We? Yeah. We, we really do. do. It's, it's, it's very pretty. Very pretty book. Yeah, absolutely. It, yeah, as but, much as it's, uh, you know, slightly, slightly um, xenophobic. Uh, maybe xenophobic is <laughs> not the right word. Uh, the privileged. Privileged in the British. Uh, uh, privileged of British ideal. Yeah, we still have Childers the Imperialist at this point. We do. Thank you. It's much better than what I was trying to say. Yeah. 
So yeah, uh, investigation. I liked it, buddy. I thought it was uh, it was good. I enjoyed the narrative and the writing, particularly once we got out into the open with the characters and they're comfortable in each other's company. I feel that I don't know how you feel, but I think that happens around chapter six or seven. At which point, Carruthers has adjusted to manning the ship by himself. I yes. think once Davies trusts him to take the boat on his own, that that's where we get it. Uh, I did find the pace really good, consistently so, um, with the exception of the middle third. I do. I agree that the. I mean, we've we've said this. The execution does feel a little bit hyperbolic and a bit pip pip tally ho. You know, um, it it hasn't aged terribly well. But the enthusiastic form aside, it is an enduring. And of course, it's it's a prophetic story. Mm-hmm. The romance. The, yeah, like the romance really comes to nothing. Though it's a bit of a non-starter. I, it feels very tokenistic to me with Clara, and I can forgive the narrative of this inclusion because that was kind of typical at the time. I guess we're not going to imbue female characters with a lot of agency beyond posting letters and running in and out of rooms with like yeah. emotive blushes and things, are we? No, I guess we'll talk about Clara in the supporting in the supporting cast. Yeah, we, we can we, we can get do that. Yeah, we get to that. Yeah. Um, how the story is structured, you know, with the map, it's narration as sort of a report to the British government. You know, you can, it's a very original concept at the time. And I do, I do like that. I think that's really interesting. It's almost like a, 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 actually a serious version of a modest proposal by um, <laughs> Jonathan Swift, Jonathan Swift in a way, because he's proposing yeah, yeah. something that's, that he actually believes in. Well, I mean, Swift believed in what he was writing too, but he was being very satirical. Yes, obviously. he was. Yeah. Uh, Eat the babies. Yeah. But you know, this story is pretty simplistic when you break it down, when you take out all of the excess, I suppose uh-huh. you could yes, say, yes. young clerk invited to go duck hunting in the Baltic on old school mates yacht gets caught up in conspiracy to plan the German invasion of England. There's a villain who's a traitor. German officials, part of the conspiracy, uh, and the traitor's daughter, who the protagonist's friend wants to save. While it's tough going at first, you have with the protagonist learning how to sail, realizing there's more than meets the eye to his schoolmate. He eventually sees the worth of his friend, learns how to sail and navigate the Frisian islands, as well as pull off some amateur espionage work. Some deception and sleight of hand. Uh, in the end, of course, the traitor kills himself rather than face punishment back in England, and his daughter is saved. And the British learn of the possible invasion and make the correct maneuvers to counter it based on the epilogue, which is kind of a very emotionally empty epilogue, but still. Now, mm. once the invasion plan is revealed via the fateful tug ride in the third act that leads to Carruthers, Davies, Dolman, and Clara escaping in the Dulcibella, the format of the story changes to the epilogue of this whole affair. And as I said, it's not emotionally satisfying. It's not a, it's not a great denouement, uh, despite its creativity. I feel it ends before it really heats up. And then we have to read an outline of what is to happen next. It's like the novel got tangled up into an essay project of Childers. Um, I mean, that's what it is. But it still kind of took the enjoyment out of it for me a bit in, in that sense. Overall, I did find the structure of their novel, as I said, original and creative. Childers write some suspenseful sequences. Uh, absolutely. Uh, they gave me white knuckles despite being bogged down in the nautical terminology. It's frustrating to be caught up in the momentum of the story. And then you have to turn the page to the next chapter. And it's three pages long of paragraphs that you know is full of nautical terminology of <laughs> the description of like land of like coastal of the coast of, of the coastline with terms like shelf and, and glasses and, and stuff that I just don't know what to do with. Uh, and then you turn the page to the next chapter and then, then it shows how they escape the sandbar islet, you know, 
I really feel his suspense writing shined at the dinner at Dolman's house. Also, in terms of how that intermeshed with the character writing, uh, that was spot on. Um, when David relates his story, when he first encounters Dolman, I was glued to that story. Like that was very well presented, was cool. even though it was expository. Was cool. It was done through David's character in a way. It was one of the few moments where I think his character really came out. Um, the bromance lives between these set pieces, you know, energizes the whole narrative. Uh, and I love, the, as you mentioned, the great travelogging, uh, which when Childers describes the coastlines of the islands of Norderney. And even the train wide when Carruthers doubles back to sneak on the tug. Great That's suspense. Cool. Yeah. I was on the edge cool. of my seat on that. He's almost doing Assassin's Creed in the village following Von Bruning. Like, mm. I literally expect him to, like, basically go into, like, slowly get behind him. And then the crowd comes by. And then he gradually just, like, disappears so that he's translucent. Much like in yeah. Assassin's Creed when you have to follow people around. So it kind of reminded me of that. I know I shouldn't bring rem- video games into literary well, discussion, but it's just- No, I think it's a good it's a good comparison, yeah. but it reminded me of the final problem where Holmes and Watson double back on the train to yes. to try to double up uh, Moriarty. That's kind of what That's- it reminded me of. Yeah, good point. Good point. I got the video game reference and you get the literary uh, reference at the time that definitely children would have been aware of. So mm. spot on there. But um, it is funny what you mentioned, man, because like it, it's a rare case, isn't it, of life imitating art where you work through the middle third of this book and it is a lot like being stuck in the sand, just grinding through these shifty, muddy paragraphs of detail and nomenclature. It is slow and deliberate. Like uh, at, this, at this point, there's a lot of Moby Dick-esque stuff going on here. Yeah. And I'm sure that Childers knew his Melville, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's well-conceived. Yeah. It's yeah, well-conceived. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but well conceived the keel of this narrative uh it mm-hmm. of this narrative ship so to speak it drags across the bottom a few times especially in the middle so it's a bit of a bumpy ride there especially when we have to turn back to the glossary but overall yeah. uh the yeah. journey was very satisfying um so i think four to five is uh, a perfect rating for the investigation the writing of this story okay i'm not far off i i, I felt like the romance bit did bother me a bit like, uh, I didn't see, I don't see the much point of putting, uh, but again, it's, it, it is recency bias because I know why they are right. I know why he's written it the way he's written it because he's got to throw in that little, that little distraction of, of the girl, but she's, she doesn't do anything in the story. And I find it a bit, a bit silly that she has to be rescued, but, um, I wonder whatever because he was recording Molly at the time. I'm wondering. Well, no, no, that was after he published the book. So, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was, I was thinking of that. Yeah, I, I went, I went a bit, um, I went a bit higher than you on my investigation. Right, I, I went for four and a half though, because although I agreed with everything you said and I enjoyed the book and I found myself really stuck in the middle section, <laughs> he does something in this middle section which I was impressed with and i think it's kind of a gesture towards understanding that maybe the general reader won't pick up on everything or won't be able to go with everything do you notice what he does about 100 pages in to the way the chapters are structured i think it's quite clever it doesn't really uh, it doesn't forgive all of it but i think it helps no it's not a quiz (laughs) it's not a quiz i'm not not trying to i guess i didn't what he does is he mixes around the presentation for example instead of prose narrative he gives us a couple of chapters of diary entry and then he gives us a letter you know that was written it's so it's not a it's not pure epistolary 
no, it's it's not it's not epistolary or anything, but he he changes in this slow middle section the narrative presentation, and I think that's a way while he's kind of building up his story that he kind of keeps his own reader in check and keeps him keeps him with it because it's more interesting than just here's the same thing, here's the same thing, here's the same thing. He gives us a little bit different, and maybe I don't know, maybe maybe that's not worth a half mark, but I no, thought it I, was. I, that's that's true because if you think about it, you have the narration espoused at the beginning, uh, then you have the story told through uh, Davy's perspective about Dullman, his first encounter with Dullman, and then we go to as you said, like epistolary s- segments, mm-hmm. and then we kind of go back to a very detailed nautical section that we kind of go through. But I think in a way of verisimilitude, it's kind of works with the story because it allows you to kind of feel what they're feeling to kind of get into their mindset of what they're dealing with by bogging you down, I guess, with the terminology that I felt that Childers felt was necessary because he probably felt that there were people who would read this story and may want to, maybe he was writing for people who were sailing as well, who would enjoy the book. I think so, that's such an important observation because yeah, it's, it's unfair thing, but for it's, us. But it's not, but, but it's, but I think it's a good thing in a way too. It is a good thing. It's, yeah. it, it's ultimately a good thing. And I feel like if I was to just score this book on exactly my feelings today, I would be slamming the guy for writing a book about uh, his hobby. And I think the fact that I was fully engaged with this story, once I broke the back of it, like I said, chapter five or six, once you get into that and the relationship, you accept the relationship, the characters are fun to follow. The, I I mean, yeah, um, I think I've already said it, but I'm, I'm trying really hard not to dislike a book because it's not recent it's not contemporary you know what i mean like you have to think i think of of it's like an old movie it's like yes we're used to you know very fast-paced editing and uh and bigger production and cgi of all stuff Mm -hmm. but 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 if you but if you watch it that's why some people when they watch old movies they can't they're just amazed how they linger and how slow they are and and Mm -hmm. i don't mean slow like in a bad way but they're just you know it's like this shot this shot has lasted for like 50 seconds now you know and and they some people just can't get over that so we always have to put ourselves in the terms of how stories are written and the structure that is written of the time that it took place uh because that's a big way of understanding it we have to be open-minded in that way when it comes to literature in my opinion yeah i agree so my my four and a half on investigation um is also bolstered i think by the strength of the descriptive writing in the book there are really nice passages here i don't think muddy sandy shores are as exciting as deep rousing open water and krakens but he manages to bring bring the villages to life as we uh, exemplified there a few moments ago he manages to bring the shores and the boat and the deck to life i am There was not a moment of the story, once I broke the back of it, that I wasn't appreciative of, even if I am dredging myself a little through that, the middle 50 pages or so, where we've got so much nautical terminology, and he's just kind of peacocking his feathers around a little. I'll I'll give it that. And I guess that's where the half mark comes away, because I was engaged with the story the whole way through it, and accepted its weaknesses, and uh, was was going with it. I was sailing with it, if you see what I mean. Um, I was being concerned. Conservative, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I was being conservative with my ratings. Um, it's one of the better written books that I feel we've had on the show in a wee while. Like, nice to read, and when you do sink into a passage of really nice descriptive writing, 
and dialogue too. He's a good. I, I felt some of the dialogue was quite modern, actually. But mm. when you when you get into when there's also like philosophical reflection in the book that's quite nice. You know, it, it kind of keeps you going. Like, um, on, I hugged the axiom that in all conflicts, it is just as fatal to underrate the difficulties of your enemy as to overrate your own. The chief one, and it multiplied a thousandfold in the excitement of the contest, was, I felt sure, the fear of striking an error, of using a sledgehammer to break a nut. In breaking it, they risked publicity, and publicity, I felt convinced, was death to their secret. You know, like, there's that kind of exciting, fun... Like, I, I like the writing of this book. It's, it's and it, fun. It's fun. And not only it gives you a window into the psyche of Carruthers, it gives you a psyche mm -hmm. into the author as well. It this does, is a man yeah. who was, it was, despite, you know, being kind of like not much visual, like, you know, aesthetically, um, not a very, you know, person that stuck out because he looked, he looked very plain and he wasn't attractive really and his voice wasn't very appeal uh, uh pleasing to hear uh but he did it anyways he debated anyways he did he believed in what he believed and he took risks and uh, you can see that in his writing that you can see the philosophy that he's been parting into the story and you can see mm -hmm. how a philosophy like that would eventually you know for the right cause you know go all the way and yeah. um yeah. maybe to to, yeah. to his own detriment but at the same time, it's, 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 an, it's interesting to think all the stuff that you mentioned about, you know, about the structure and how that's been put together. And you mentioned about the middle section and stuff. And really, if you think about it, like a half a point is my feeling that is worthy of like the slog of the middle section of like those big navigation yeah, nautical, yeah, nautical sections. Yeah. So you convinced me I'm going to go for a four and a half out of five for uh, the You don't have to do that, man. But, um, you don't have to do that, but I'm happy to have you on board my uh, my plate if if you want to be there. I I just think, buddy, this is a fun book to read. The slow the, look, there are undeniably slow sections in this plot. Everybody, I know yes. that we're 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 absolutely butchering this dead horse already. We're we're kicking it further, and you want us to move on, and we will quickly. But yeah. in a nutshell, there are slow moments to the plot of the Riddle of the Sands, but the writing of the book with the exception of a few passages in 30 or 40 or 40 or 50 pages of the midsection, the, the writing is really engaging and, and Childers brings this part of the world to life with his detail. This is some of the nicest uh, descriptive writing I think we've had in a long time. I think he outwrites um, John Buchan and oh, 100 Steps. Yes, I like absolutely. I like that adventure differently. I like that adventure differently, but I think in terms of descriptive writing, um, believability. This, this book, yeah, this book, this book's got it. Um, so four and a half. I'm happy to gush, and I'll stick by it. If you want, you know, someone listening thinks it's only worth a three. Yeah, maybe some days I'll feel that way with you, but today uh, I'm I'm happy. So I'm going four and a half, and so did you. There we go. So perpetrators, we got yep. uh, Dullman, the former British admiral, who we don't really know what his real name was. And then we have Captain von Bruning of the German patrol boat. We have the Dutch uh, boom. And then we have Grimm, the henchman, so to mm -hmm. speak, Grimm. Yeah. Of, of, of the operation, the guy that would basically lead the invasion once it goes underway. He would lead the troops and the barges, that they, but the tugs that would, would be pulling onto the East Holland shores of uh, the English coast, right? Like L L Lincolnshire, yeah. that was the main plan, right? Um, well, when he wasn't when he wasn't writing fairy tales with his brother, you mean? Ex exactly. Yeah. Um, those are our villains of the story. Those are our perpetrators. Um, I'm going to say is that we get bits of Dolman. 
I don't think I was emotionally caught up into his suicide at the end of the story. I can see why he did what he did, but it just, to me, like I just didn't feel the buildup towards it. And I found that like his resolution of his character by the end of the story was very pat. And I, yes. I, it, it kind of, yes. to me, kind of ruined the denouement a little bit, even more so than yeah, because the, he was Davies. He was Davies bad guy. He wasn't Carruthers. And as such, he's not the reader's bad guy. We yeah. get him. We don't get him through the story. We get him told to us. And yeah. Our, Von Brunin, he he goes and he's our bad guy. Von Brunin yes. is kind of our bad guy. I yeah. found him more menacing than Dolman. I found him more interesting. I like the the docility, the, that face of docility and calm that Von Brunin had the whole time. And he mm. could even kind of. I love how Ch- how Childers captured even in through the perspective of the narration of Carruthers, particularly mm. in that dinner scene, how Von Brunin was like trying to what was is he up to something what exactly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is von von bruni could have deep down inside saying like this kid is totally bsing us right now and that's right i kind yeah. of fucking love it like von bruni is like <laughs> yeah, having yeah. fun and he's not a villain he's not an evil uh he's not like a nazi villain no he's not skeletor he's, yeah no he is a servant of his country and mm-hmm, and he's mm-hmm. polite and he's a gentleman and and all these sorts of things, like he he's a military man, but he's also regimented, and he's yeah, uh, and he's has finesse. Like uh, he was a very he was a great antagonist, and I wish there was more of him because if there was, I would be given the perpetrators a much higher mark. Okay, right. So yeah, it is really just Dolman and Van Brunen we've got to go by because Baum is a minor conspirator. He travels back as far as Amsterdam with Davies in the last fifty pages or something, but he's only there for a few paragraphs. Um, and yeah, we, we've got Grim Miner, you know, who's like this other, this other conspirator that doesn't really do much, but as you say, he would in the actual, um, in the actual offensive. Um, what did you go for? I went for three and a half out of five. So did I, I was a three and a half out of five. And I don't know if that's just cause I've settled on that. It might be a bit generous, but I, I liked Von Brunin. I particularly liked him, um, when they had their first meeting in the pub. I liked him then, uh, and I found him quite interesting. And Dolman could have been interesting if the book was longer. Yes. And if, because he has a great scene when he is uh, confronted on the, on the boat by Carruthers and uh, Davies. I like that quite a bit. But it's not extended enough, is it, you know? No, it's not. And I, I wanted to feel something when he passed away. Like I thought mm-hmm. maybe he would even have like a redemption arc, but that didn't happen mm-hmm. either. He just killed himself. He was a coward. He was a coward, but as I said, he was yeah. not our villain. He no. was Davies' villain. And yes. as such, we didn't get to know the that we only get to know it through his well detailed story of the Medusa trying to wreck him on the sandbars, but uh, we don't really get to see the build up and the, the growth of the character. That's why I say von Brunin is more of the reader's villain, but He's not a villain either, but uh, all that stuff with the book that he had written under the pseudonym Lieutenant Xavier, Royal Navy, or whatever it was, I liked that yeah. little bit. But I felt it was, I felt it was a little bit undercut when Clara f- sees the book and then runs away, like, "Oh, I have to go." Like it's all very silly, kind of hysterical yeah. woman thing, you know? Yeah, it felt like a bit of a Sherlock Holmes moment because, like, why would they? Mm-hmm. Where they're kind of setting up this mystery of yeah, why she why she ran away mysteriously, but it's because of that book, right? I think yeah. they set that up well in the story, and I enjoyed that part of it. But I do agree, Claire just kind of disappears, but and then she doesn't have much agency either. Like, I never found. I guess we'll get to the, to her when the supporting cast, but um, yeah. 
Do you know what? We are tied so far going through this. We're tied so far. We're both at, uh, what do we got? We got uh, nine and three and a half is 12. So we're both at uh, 12 and a half so far. Well, then I think it's time we get to the environs then, hey, like uh, the atmosphere, the writing of the story, um, all that, you know, everything involved with that. Now, we give this out of five, of course. Um, mm-hmm. I'm just going to state straight off that um, I think we've we've already mentioned the description uh, of the travel yeah. log that Childers has given us in this story, and it's fantastic. Like it just pulls you right into that world. Like you can smell the sea air, you can feel it. You know, everything about environment is used to tell the story. You have Childers jumping off the Dulcibella to get a bat, you know, to bathe at the beginning, and that's <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. like the, that's like his baptism almost. So they're using the <laughs> environment kinda, yeah, yeah. to tell, you know, to tell the story. Even when they're off the boat, the train ride back from Amsterdam all the way to, you know, to that port, all of mm-hmm. that was d- done well, like over land and and sea or foam. You know, it mm-hmm. all of the description was so great in this story, and it was used so well to tell the story that I couldn't help but give it full marks, five out of five. Okay, wow. Well, you did go a little bit more than me on that one, but only half a point. Uh, I I feel like because I was so interested in the little villages and towns and the pubs, that's where I would have liked to have a bit more Herman Melville in there, a little bit more linger time in the villages, in the bakeries, in the markets, picking up the stores, going to the post offices, um, to, to kind of juxtapose the time on the water. I would like to have had a bit more time on land and just to see the two guys needing to adjust their sea legs a little bit more. Uh, but it's... It is a it's a simple point. I like what we've got quite a bit, and I think any reader who likes descriptive place setting will like it too. Once they break into the style, because it's a little slow going at the start, but once you get into the rhythm of the the narration, I think the environs really do come to life. Uh, I went four four and a half. Uh, I really like the description of the section when when they get to uh, Ben Cecil, and I've already read the bit about Sonderberg, the Dolce Bella itself, because it's got some really nice description above deck mm-hmm. and below. Yeah, you, the whole character of the ship is like, yeah. it's like to me, it's like the Millennium Falcon. You just live in there. It's like mm-hmm. the Serenity and Firefly. <laughs> like, you're, yeah, you're yeah. right, or the Rossinante in the Expanse. Like, you, you, you feel Rossinante, like the- that's the name of, uh, in what? The Expanse. That's cool. Uh, the Rossinante yeah. was the name of the uh, the truck that I know it's from uh, windmills, uh, Don Quixote. But, Don Quixote, yeah. But it's also the name of the truck that John Steinbeck had the GMC Corporation huh. uh, make for him as he did his travel around America in 1959 when he was writing his uh, memoir, Travels with Charlie. He named that truck uh, Rossinante. Rossinante. So that, oh, that, that's pretty cool. That's cool. There's a lot in the Expanse novels and also in the series. There's a lot of Cervantes references in there mm-hmm. um, and cool. whatnot. But anyways, the whole idea, yeah, like, like living in the, in this ship, like I felt like I was there the whole time. Um, like to me, a visual medium like a film does a great job of making you feel the lived-in experiences of the characters on a ship like this. But the mm-hmm. writing itself captured that, and that to me is something significant as well. So the fact that I could visualize it without even you know seeing like uh, a celluloid version of it uh, is pretty significant in my particular case as someone who sees a lot of film. So I really appreciated that about it. And I think that's one of the reasons why this was such a high mark for me in this, in this sense. Nice one. Okay. Well, how about the supporting cast then? Let's uh, finish off our pipes. It was sufficient for the narrative, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I didn't really have any other, like there was Johannes, the other yachtsman or I don't think it was a yachtsman. I think he was like a, tug driver was wasn't he or something or mm-hmm. and then clara 
I mean, she's there. She's plot device essentially to get Davies. She's, she's, I don't really know what Clara is. Is she to give humanity to Dolman? Is that what is that what she's about? Maybe. What is but again, Frau Dolman about? End, you know? Just to fill a table at the dinner? Like, is that a, to, to fill a seat at the dinner? Like, is that basically what that's so. about? Just to have and, an, and they his just mother leave there, Frau yeah. Dolman behind too. <laughs> they do. Yeah, she just like, stays like, there. She was pretty pleasant too. Like, you know, I it's thought they, right. they, yeah. I thought they were they would make her like one of those typical kind of like burly Frau types. You know, like. um What's her name? Um, Ilsta Pat in uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Like <laughs> yeah, sure. an Irma Bunt type, you know, like a particular housefrau kind of caricature. But instead, you know, like she was all right. She was she was pretty chill. And she was? I don't know. And and they just abandoned her. <laughs> I feel bad for like, Clara didn't ask her, her mother to come with her. Like, I don't know. I that's found that right. uh, uh, really weird. Maybe because of they, there would be issues with the citizenship. I don't know. But yeah, Clara that, to me. That, yeah, sure. That's why. When she appeared on the on the Dulcibella that in that scene where they're talking, like there were some introspections of her character through Carruthers' view, so I thought that was handled well. But then as soon as we get back to the villa, she just becomes a damsel in distress, essentially that Davies has to save. So it didn't really much go from there. Uh, Johannes was okay. The people that we meet in the pubs are okay. I did kind of enjoy that kind of that prickish uh, innkeeper that. Um, Crothers runs into and in, on the last part of his journey back yeah, to the port. That's right. He's um, cool. w- it was, was very believable because this is this is, this yeah. is like you're, you're going to run into characters who will support you, and then you also run into characters who are going to be suspicious. And they're, they're but they're not being too overly suspicious. But you have one person that is. It, it creates a balance of believability to me, and I, I did like that. Overall, the supporting cast was sufficient. I give it three three out of five. Three out of five. Well, I went for two and a half. I think this is the obvious weak point in the story. Clara Dolman, we've already talked about her as a tepid love interest. I find her her scenes, even for the time, even for the time, you know, you think about what Doyle's written with lesser space, you know, some of his characters like Violet Hunter, you know, or are, are just outstanding by comparison. This, this woman, this young woman who does have some agency in how she negotiates post offices and, you know, that kind of stuff. She could have, she could have had a bit more time on the page. Frau Dolman, you've already mentioned her, kind of empty, open-ended there. What what happens with her is a bit empty at the end. Um, Grimm and Baum, both, they're a bit lame. They're dinner guests. I did like the guy Schiffer Bartels, though. He's in Chapter 7. Uh, oh, he's yeah. the skipper of the, the Johannes, right? He's he's quite fun. He, uh, I yeah, like Johannes. Him. Yeah, that was yeah, the name of his ship. Cool. Sorry, yeah. I was thinking Remember, of Bartels, he, yes. He encourages them over beers just to kind of, oh, the bad weather's coming in. You should, you know, put your boat up for the winter now and just sit in front of the fire with your lady like me. And if you don't have a fire, then I'll get you one. You can sit and hang out at my cottage or whatever it is he says. Yeah, exactly. He's pretty cool. He's the kind of guy who you'd like to meet at a pub when you just rock your boat up, you know, late fall or early fall or whatever. And I, I didn't know, like it's, it's not going to hurt my scoring overall too much, but there is a dearth of interesting supporting characters in this book. And given how many villages they enter, I thought this could have been like a Chaucerian opportunity to get little characters that had real spunk and pop exist in these visits to shore, you know? Alas, but no. um, Alas, not. Yeah, so uh, I would say in, we've already made the comparisons to Moby Dick, you know, but like Starbuck and Queequeg and these guys, these are supporting characters. And yes, that's a much bigger book. This is, uh, I, I think an opportunity was missed by Childers here in not spending, you know, instead of 50 pages of going through the mud and telling me how many different knots you can tie on deck, why don't you spend 
25 yeah. of those pages, meeting people in the towns, getting more getting more opinions on the treasure salvage, getting more opinions on, oh, these, you know, where the Germans are keeping their fleet, get, get more locals involved. That would have been great. So it's two and a half for me. I, I could have failed it really, but. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I, I agree why you, I, I understand why you came to that conclusion. Sure, sure. Um, I was probably a little more generous, but uh, because I did like the parts that you suggested that were higher points, I liked them a little more than you did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Yeah, going back to like the gold, like the that French, the the Corinne, like the wreck of the Corinne, like what was the point of that in the story? Was that just kind of a cover story so that they could basically have their arm, like their soldier, their infantry camped on that beach and then no one would go near it? Like, yeah, I think so. I think that's exactly it, you know? Yeah. And I was kind of hoping to see a bit more, uh, or a few other Germans in, in, in and around these environments too like a couple of the guys who maybe they had shore leave and they were drinking in the pubs uh when they weren't on the warships or when they weren't dealing with the barges or the tugs or something you know it would have been neat to see a few more of them because the impression you get is that dolman and the rest of the quartet are the only ones really you know manipulating things here when there's obviously others that are still likely to be spotted in the towns and villages right it feels that um, Dolman might have acted a bit too rashly when it came to Davies. But that first ride, that ride that Carruthers takes on the tugboat, that was like almost like not just the rehearsal, but almost mm-hmm. like just the experiment to see if it would work to get to the North yeah, Sea yeah. on that basis that they were doing right at that moment. So, right, we, don't, yeah, like, yeah. so we can only assume that immediately after that went, went through, if, if the tug wasn't crashed and all that sort of stuff happening phase one might've been greenlit. You know what I mean? So like, yep. so we never got to phase one yet of that operation. we only saw like the preliminaries essentially. And that Pat epilogue at the end, which sort of wraps it up. But, you know, interestingly, that's kind of how the book is structured at the beginning too. So much of it is in Davies' head, not on the page. So much of the epilogue tells us what doesn't happen, right? It, it's kind of yeah. interesting the way book ended that way. But overall, Josh, our scores for The Riddle of the Sands are quite positive. I was 19 out of 25 yeah, overall. It was a great you book. Were, you were 20.5 overall. It was it was an embarrassment on my part that I did not know this book. I picked it up on a whim because I was reading the back of it and said, this sounds really interesting. I don't know anything about this guy. And I'm really glad that I learned something about this guy. So if as a reader <laughs> and a student and a teacher, I'd never heard of a writer who's so important to British literature and letters and to history of yeah. you know, Irish home rule as you went through in your uh, in your presentation of him. I mean, it just goes to show, you know, that like, and that's one of the great things about doing the show together. We introduce each other to titles and books and authors, and it's fun just to, to kind of put your hand inside the monkey bag and see what you get, you know? And this was <laughs> a good one, so. Good, good yeah. job. It was good, yeah, it was but a good I'm pick. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm, it's I'm, only novel. Like, how wild is that? It's his only novel. Well, he was occupied. <laughs> yeah, you could, you could say that. Yes, he was occupied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, well, listen, buddy, uh, we've got some great books coming up this summer. Uh, we have Pierre Bolio's Vertigo. Uh, well, it's a co-written book also with uh, Thomas Nakarak. And it's a French book which uh, led to the inspiration for Hitchcock to make his film Vertigo. We're going to have a look at that. And we've also got Margaret Miller's Beast in View. I'm quite keen to get into this one. It's a smaller read, a more straightforward read. Margaret Miller's a Canadian writer. Uh, I'm, I'm, I think we should try this one on for size. What do you think? Should we go for Beast in View next? Yeah, we'll give it a go. I think that would be a, a, a change in pace. 
something a little different, you know. A uh, good crime story there. 1956, the winner of the uh, Writers of America Edgar Award. We've had Edgar Award winners on the book bef- uh, on the show before, so definitely it'll be have. fun. It'll be fun to see uh, what Miller does with that um, highly rated mystery. So, thanks everybody for checking out this long double or checking out this uh, supersized episode of Lighting the Pipes. We're Good sorry. two hours. No, <laughs> not at all. Good two hours on Riddle of the Sands, and uh, we hope you uh, we hope you've enjoyed it. Or if you haven't, then that's fine too. Let us know what you thought at uh, lightingpipes at gmail dot com, or check us out on our Instagram. We'll be more active over the summer. We'll make a commitment to get ourselves more active over the summer. And uh, LTP Nawire coming soon. Uh, Roberts Yodmax crisscross. Magic. I'm looking forward to it. Right, buddy. I'm going to uh, push my boat off the estuary now and uh, and get out of these these placid waters, more into open sailing. Same with me. Uh, you couldn't have butchered your own. You couldn't have butchered your own metaphor there. No, I exhausted my nautical metaphors for for the day. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. Huzzah.